Welcome to the Bad Roman Podcast. On this show, we talk with veterans, community leaders, Christians, and non-Christians as we explore the entanglement of Christians with the state. The Bad Roman Project was created out of the firm belief that as Christians, we are called to follow Christ, not the state. Here is your host, Craig Hargis. Hey folks, as y'all know by now, we love getting perspectives on this show that many of us don't have. It is a way to get folks to step out of a mindset that is most likely embedded from past teachings and to try and get folks to question what exactly is going on. Today, I have Terrell Carter on the show. He is a president and executive director for RISE organization and a former police officer in St. Louis, Missouri. This conversation could potentially make some listeners uncomfortable, which is exactly why I asked Terrell to come on. Right. We'd rather yes. serve God as right. our Caesar, you Terrell, how are you doing today? I'm doing well. Thank you for having me on today. I've been looking forward to this conversation. I, li- I heard you on uh, the Toward Anarchy podcast. Michael Storm is a friend of mine, and he's had me on his show a couple of times, and I really like the way his, his show is set up. It sounds like a radio show, you know, like you're listening to the radio. It's, it's a little different like a normal podcast you would hear and the way he, they go about producing that. I, I really appreciate what the work he's doing. And I, I listen to so many different podcasts that I don't get to keep up with everything all the time. So I'll just go back and check on other podcasts throughout my, when I'm, especially during my commute. And I came across y'all's conversation. He may have even shared it with me because he, we have a, a discussion group on Facebook, a bad Roman discussion group, and he's part of it. And he may have shared it in there as well. And I listened to it and I was like, all right, I need to figure out how to get this guy on the show. So I sent him a message and he sent me your email address. And now here we are. And you were gracious enough to come on the show. No, I really appreciate the invitation. I, I don't take these opportunities lightly. Um, the perspective of, that I have, I know is probably not the norm. And so uh, my goal is never to be a moron towards any group of people. But I think that we need to hear more of the experiences of former officers, especially officers of color because it typically goes against what people see on television or the na- uh, regular narrative that is put out about police and policing. Right. You're the second officer I've had on the show. We've got another one that we haven't published yet at the time of this recording. I interviewed a sheriff out of Arizona. He'd heard our episode on immigration and how Christians should be responding to immigrants. And he has uh, turned down an offer from the governor to send National Guard to the border to keep immigrants coming in. He's like, I don't, I don't need that. Our, our community is peaceful, you know? And so I, I immediately asked him to come on. It was a fantastic conversation. I'm looking forward to publishing that as well. But I have a question for you before we get into the topic. Are you a baseball fan? I have been known to watch baseball throughout my life. Yes. <laughs> okay. So the reason I asked that, cause I know you're in St. Louis and I'm a big Texas Ranger fan. I've been to St. Louis a couple of times. And one of those times I was meeting a couple of friends there for uh, Texas Rangers, St. Louis Cardinal series. We went to the Friday night game and one of my friends, she was a, she's a Cardinal fan the other, her other buddy, she was, she was a Cub fan. So I don't even know how they were friends at the time. I don't even think they're friends anymore. If you understand the Cub Cardinal <laughs> rivalry. I, I do. We just ended a series against the Cubs and the whole town celebrated because we swept the Cubs. <laughs> <laughs> I've got Cub fans. I got friends that are Cub fans and I got, 
you know, living in Northwest Arkansas, there's a lot of Cardinal fans there. So I, I grew up as a Cardinals fan living in St. Louis, uh, but I have a twin brother and we went to high school in uh, Texas. We lived in a place called Gatesville, Texas. So we grew up, you know, at least for four years being Texas Rangers fans and Houston Astros fans. And it was always interesting when the Cardinals or played against either one of those teams. Again, we have not had a whole lot to hang our hat. Well, we the Cardinals have won the 2011 championship, and then the Blues won. We haven't had a whole lot to cheer about since then. Yeah, we don't want to talk about 2011, though. <laughs> I mean, I think after we get done recording, I don't remember his name, but our closing pitcher at the time was Neftali Feliz. And I think when we get done, we have to write him a letter, a nasty letter, because – <laughs> we we were we were one pitch away twice in that game from being world champs. Yeah, I don't know. I, all right, let's move on. I don't want to talk about it. <laughs> I'm sorry to, that it's still so painful for you. Yeah, uh, Neftali Feliz, if you're listening, I'm pretty still pretty upset with you. I don't know what happened to you, but <laughs> I think he's probably moved on with his life. <laughs> Craig has not. <laughs> That's what happens when you're a fan. That's what happens when you're a dyed in the wool fan. It's, it's painful. You know, being a Ranger fan these days now, it's whatever. We're terrible. Why don't you give us a little background of yourself? Like I said, I, mean, I, I have a pretty good understanding of your background from hearing you on, on Michael Storm's show. But for the, our listeners, tell us a little bit about yourself so we, they can get a better feel for you. Yeah, I am uh, from St. Louis. And if I say we, it's because I have a twin brother. Uh, we are African-American and we are black. And, uh, you know, for some people, you know, in the big scheme of things, that doesn't matter. But it it also funnels into the story of how my life has turned out. Uh, my grandparents were teenage parents. They had uh, got pregnant and had my father at 16 and subsequently went on to have uh, three more children. Uh, my parents uh, were teenagers when our mother became pregnant with us uh, and they had us got married and then had us, uh, but did not stay together. Uh, my father ended up going into the military. It was right at the end of Vietnam or after Vietnam. So he went into the army and truthfully was just not a part of our lives on a regular basis after that. But my father's parents uh, helped my mother raise us. Um, again, neither one of our parents graduated from high school. Our grandparents didn't make it past the eighth grade. And so our mother struggled in uh, her attempts to try to raise us. And, you know, she ran in some crowds that probably were not the best for her. And eventually, um, you know, we lived on our own with our mother for a little while. But um, so when we were born, we were living with our mother and our grandparents. Eventually, she was able to move us out into our own apartment, but she couldn't keep things together. And eventually, my brother and I moved back in with my grandparents. Our mother, you know, kind of bounced around from couch to couch. And eventually, uh, she was murdered when we were seven years old. Uh, and our father didn't come back to get us. He just kept going on with his life. And so his parents, our grandparents raised us and they raised us in a loving home. I mean, my grandparents are the reason why I am the man that I am today. And uh, I write several books. I've written several books and every book is dedicated to them because if it wasn't for them and the belief that they instilled in us, uh, I would not have accomplished anything that I have accomplished or uh, have done to this point. So we turned 14 years old and our father returns, shows up in our life again and, you know, ask us if we want to move with him and his new family to a place called Gatesville, Texas. And we go, we say, yeah, I mean, what, this is what we've been waiting for all of our lives is to have a relationship with you. And we moved to this small community called Gatesville, where the biggest employer was the 
Texas Department of Corrections, which had a men's prison and a women's prison as a rural community or was a rural community at the time. And so we spent four years living in central Texas. And it was a good experience overall. And to be truthful, I can't say that there was a lot that went wrong other than, you know, the the typical kind of racial stuff where we were young black men and, you know, predominantly white community that some of them had challenges with understanding that just because we were African-American did not mean that we were statistics. Now, everyone else knew that my brother and I were really good guys. You know, we, my brother graduated number four or number five, number four in our high school class. I graduated number 11. I was an artist or I am an artist, you know, spent my time drawing, painting, won multiple art competitions all throughout high school. My twin brother was the best writer in central Texas. Um, He won multiple awards At, at, at a certain point. He won, you know, multiple consecutive awards every week in, you know, high school writing and journalism, things like that. Uh, We both played sports. I played football, basketball, and ran track. My brother played football, basketball, and played baseball. When we graduated, we both got partial scholarships for academics and for athletics as well. So you ask about baseball. My twin brother played four years of college baseball, then played semi-pro baseball, and still plays baseball to this day, and is still jacking home runs out of the park on a regular basis. So you know, we were good kids. Uh, when I was 16 years old, I answered my call to ministry. And what that means is, is at 16 years old, I recognized that God had something more for me to do than just sit around and just go to church or sit around and just kind of soak everything up that I was supposed to be in some type of leadership position or in some way helping to influence the church or God's people. And so I preached my first sermon at 17 and had no idea what that meant, did not have any idea what I was doing at all, uh, but knew that there was this kind of connection, this kind of commitment that I was giving in service to something larger than me for the rest of my life. Uh, When we graduated high school, we came back to St. Louis and St. Louis had changed before uh, since we had left, you know, when we were 14, 15 years old. Uh, St. Louis uh, had previously been uh, a community, especially the neighborhood that we grew up in, which was a primarily African-American, a black community, you know, multiple homeowners, the vast majority of people or, you know, a large amount of people in the community own their homes. They may have worked menial jobs or factory jobs or things like that, but, you know, things were really, you know, good. Uh, and when we returned to St. Louis, things had changed. Gang culture had entered into the community. I remember, uh, you know, when we got back, the first thing our grandparents told us was that we couldn't wear red or blue at any point because the Crips and the Bloods, and I don't know if any of your listeners remember those two gangs that come uh, originate out of Chicago and uh, Los Angeles, but they had infiltrated St. Louis and Darrell and I, or my twin brother and I had no idea about any of this. We were just young guys who were trying to live life. And so we were facing those kinds of challenges, but we also faced a challenge where, again, you know, St. Louis at that point was still a majority white city. Uh, There was this perception of young black culture that, you know, we were criminals, that we couldn't be trusted, that, you know, we needed to be treated in a way that uh, was not good to be truthful. Uh, People didn't know or understand that I was in ministry, that I was going to Bible college and eventually was going to seminary. People didn't know that my twin brother, again, you know, had just won a nas- third place in a national writing competition. 
people didn't know that I was an artist and was doing extremely well and that we were in college at work regularly and going to church regularly. All they saw was two young black men who they thought fit a particular description and they had a very particular perception of us and our value. Uh, we both, you know, continue to grow, go to college. Uh, I eventually, well, we both eventually got married very young. Uh, I got married when I was 21 and my brother got married when he was 22. But we both wanted to be fathers and husbands. We wanted to be husbands and fathers. Uh, and uh, at 23, when my wife told me that she was pregnant, uh, I needed a job that was better than the one that I had. I was working in construction. I hadn't finished college by that time. And I needed you know, something that could better uh, help me take care of my family. And I eventually became a police officer for the city of St. Louis. And my goal in doing that was multiple, multifold. Number one, it was to take care of my family and provide a good living for them. Uh, number two, again, I was on that, that interesting six-year college plan. <laughs> so the police department would help pay for me to finish college. And I could do the job for 20 years and retire with a pension and then figure out something else to do with my life if I wanted. Or I could stay on until they forced me. You know, there's an age limit when you have to retire. And so my goal was either to do that, was to do 20 years and then retire and go somewhere else. And I'd always wanted to finish a master's degree and potentially try to teach on the college level. So I was going to just be a police officer, get my kids you know, raised, get them into college and then go back to school and try to become a college professor. Or I was going to only do five years, make sure that I had my master's degree finished and then go do something else. And uh, fortunately or unfortunately, that's what happened. Uh, as I patrolled the streets, uh, I patrolled uh, what is called the third district or what used to be called the third district in St. Louis. And at the time, it was one of the busiest, most dangerous districts in the city of St. Louis. And the car, the area that I patrolled in particular, was one of the busiest areas in the city of St. Louis. and actually. For multiple years, I led uh, night watch, 11 at night to 7 in the morning. I led them in the number of radio calls that I had to go on. So person calls 911, a car gets, gets dispatched. I was the busiest car in that sense for a couple of years. And this was when St. Louis first was identified as the most dangerous city in the nation. And so I did that for a few years and then got transferred to a plain clothes detail where we did narcotics investigations and we did search warrants where we, you know, I'm trying not to use lingo that your listeners may not understand, but I imagine they've seen it on television before or on a movie before. We would sit on houses, I mean, we would do investigations, we would find out about houses or locations that were potentially, uh, you know, criminal activity was happening and then we would do something about it. We would kick in doors, do search warrants, all the kind of stuff that you would see in television, except it was never that glamorous uh, at all. But I actually ended up, my partner was not necessarily a, a good guy um, and he did some things that were illegal and it came time to testify about those things and I decided I would not lie. You know, he falsified a police report and did a couple of other things and when the federal, uh, when the FBI contacted me to testify, I just could not you know, go along with what had been written. And I don't say that like I'm this overly moralistic person, but I just could not see doing those kind of things. Number one, I'm afraid of God. And I'm not trying to be funny when I say that either. I think that, you know, you, we are all obligated, especially those of us who are Christians are obligated to treat people like they are created in the image of God and that they are part of God's kingdom. And just because somebody's life circumstances is not like mine doesn't mean that I need to treat them in a way that is unkind 
or disrespectful. And so this partner of mine had a different mindset and I eventually testified against him. He did about five years in the federal penitentiary. Uh, so I left that detail, at, you know, prior to me testifying, I left that detail and went back into just regular uniform patrol. But when it became obvious to me that I was going to testify, I knew that I had to leave the police department because I literally was not going to survive. I had been, when it came out that I was the one who was testifying against my partner, I was threatened multiple times, not just by him, but by other officers as well. And my story of policing is, that's that's the, the simple thing to tell you about. You know, I, you know, had tried to push back against other police officers who were doing wrong and had been told in no uncertain terms that if I tried to stand up for that, those kind of things, then I would find myself out on the street by myself and something was going to happen to me. So I ended up leaving policing, went back into construction, and eventually uh, became the executive director of two subsequent organizations. Uh, I finished a second doctorate degree in 2015 and got recruited away from uh, community development and construction to go become a full-time professor. Then got recruited away from that seminary, uh, Christian, a Baptist seminary. I got recruited away from there to become the chief diversity officer at another Christian university. And then uh, last year uh, was recruited away uh, from there to become the executive director of RISE Community Development, where I'm the president now. So I have a family. Uh, I'm an artist. I exhibit my work on a regular basis. I write, I've written 12 books, or I've had 12 books published rather. I've written three more this year and I'm finishing a fourth one right now and have two that I'm writing for next year and editing another book on policing for next year as well. So I have a busy full life and I'm also the pastor of a church in the St. Louis area. I know, I know it's just a whole lot. Well, bro. I'm sorry. No, no, it's all, you know, I love it because I had some chills going up and down my spine. Listen to this story because, you know, like, like I said, I heard you on toward anarchy, but you just got, told me some stuff that I wasn't aware of. So that was, no, that was awesome. And Well, I'm always aware that my, my resume or my history is long and kind of convoluted, but it always makes sense to me because I'm the one leading or living it. And my life has always been about, you know, especially since I was 16, like I understand that God has something like I'm here for a purpose. I am here for a reason. And I understand what my calling is and my calling is to try to make people's lives better. Part of my calling is to try to help people understand each other, especially, you know, different groups of people uh, and to try to help each other see God's image and other people. But I think that's the calling that all of us have. We don't necessarily always embrace it, though. That's then that's exactly the probably the main reason I wanted to have you on, because you, you spoke about your faith a little bit on that show toward anarchy. And when I heard you talking about it, I was like, okay, I need to talk to this guy even more now because as a Christian, as a Christian speaking to a Christian, these are things that, and I told you before we started recording, just to kind of give you a little bit of background of myself, where I came from, you know, I grew up in West Texas and it was, I don't remember, there may have been one kid in school, like when I was in school in West Texas, it went from kindergarten through eighth grade. And then you went to San Angelo for junior high and then high school. Okay. Now, in Great Creek, Texas, I think maybe we had one kid that was black. Okay. Then we went to San Angelo and it was a, it was a mix. So it was a little bit of a culture shock for me. And I was, you know, it, it was whatever. Like, it's not like I didn't know that black people didn't exist. You know, it was just not something I was familiar with. Okay. So I let, we left San Angelo and moved to Fort Worth, Texas. And I went to a bigger high school and it was much more diverse. And it was just, but, you know, it, we got to know each other and it wasn't like, it wasn't like the things you hear the news telling you, you know what I'm saying? Like we weren't all just fighting with each other all the time. 
we got along. I played basketball with that, with that, you know, with these folks too. And then moved to Northwest Arkansas. Now I'm in Memphis and Memphis is probably the most diverse area I've ever lived in in my life. And the, the fact that you're a Christian and the, there's so many different directions I could take this conversation now after what you just told me. But. Well, you know, the challenge, one of the challenges we have as Christians in the 21st century is we don't embrace that diversity necessarily. So I've written a book called uh, Healing Racial Divides, Finding Strength in Our Diversity. I wrote a book called Police on a Pedestal, Responsible Policing in a Culture of Worship. And then I wrote a book called Untying Bootstrap Theology, Gospel of Generosity and Justice. And the point of all three of those books was to help white Christians understand that their life experience is probably different from everyone else. And that's because they don't necessarily interact with people who are different from them. So Martin Luther King is credited with this broad statement of saying that the most segregated hour of the day is on Sunday at 11 a.m. when most church services are happening. And so that's true, not just for white congregations, that's true for black congregations, Hispanic congregations, uh, Vietnamese congregations. We typically will worship with people that look like us, that sing the songs that we sing, that have the same language, that, you know, common experience. But that also pours over into our daily lives. So if we have people in our life who look different from us, they typically have the same life experience as us, though, or they typically occupy the same economic structure as we do. So when you have uh, a white, you know, even in white congregations that have, you know, black or minority, you know, members, those minority members are typically affluent like them. And I'm using affluent in a respectful way. So if you go to, you know, in the city of St. Louis, we have St. Louis City and then we have surrounding counties. If you go to a white church in the county, and you have a black family there, well, then that black family probably is in the upper echelon of income and education versus you're not going to have somebody from the more urban, less educated portions of the city. They're going to be black people who speak the same language as those white people who have similar life experiences or have similar, you know, desires or, um, you know, they play golf just like, you know, these white people do. So there's not really the, the skin color may be different, but everything else is the same. And it's so much so that the white people feel comfortable having these black people around because they speak a common language, have a common experience, those kind of things. Right. Hey, folks, Craig here. And I'd like to let y'all know we are always looking for writers to contribute to our blog. I don't care if you have any experience or not. Two or three of our contributors had no prior experience writing, and it turns out they have a real knack for it. Our project coordinator helps them put the articles together, and she publishes them on our website and Facebook page, and you will also have the option to come on the show and go more in-depth about your article. And send us an email at thebadromanpodcast at gmail.com. We're having a blast with this project, and we would love for you to join us in helping promote it. Now back to the show. All right. So I want to let's talk about your time as a police officer, because and then there's something else I want to talk about that you just spoke to about viewing people as them as being an image of God, because that's something we stress on the show quite a bit, because when you take a step back and say, okay, Jesus loves that person as much as he loves you, no matter what. And I remember you saying something in, in that Fort Anarchy episode about arresting somebody, knowing that he was a and I'm paraphrasing, obviously, but a child of God even though you knew he was a legitimate drug dealer. You know the story I'm talking about? 
Well, he, he wasn't a drug. Well, I mean, yes, that those things have happened. So there were multiple instances where I arrested people, but did not treat them bad because, again, I recognize that whatever their life circumstances may have been, they were Christian. I mean, they were, you know, God created them and I don't get to judge them based on how their life turned out. I'll give you a specific example. So when I was a police officer, I served as interim pastor of a congregation that was in the district that I patrolled, which was always really weird because I was always afraid of somebody from the community coming into the church and seeing me there and what would happen. Uh, but when I left that congregation and then even when I was patrolling that district, I used to sit in the parking lot of a church and write police reports because it was the church that was in my specific area. Uh, now, this other church was in the same district and I would have to go in that area, you know, sometimes. But in my particular area that I was assigned to every day, there was this one church and I would write police reports and just try to make sure nobody broke in. Um, and it was, again, one of the more challenging areas in the city of St. Louis. So a few years later, when I left the police department, uh, I see on the news that a pastor, a pastor of that church was killed in the basement of the church by someone who he had discipled and had baptized. The guy was a young, you know, drug addict and they found the pastor there at the church and attacked him and killed him. So they obviously were having a hard time getting someone to come to be the pastor of that church. So the first Bible college I went to, I ended up getting a phone call from them saying, hey, you hear about what happened? That used to be your area. Would you give them your resume? Because they need somebody. So I did, and I eventually was called to be the pastor of that church. Never Again, I previously only sat in the parking lot writing reports, never imagined that I'd ever become the pastor of that church. Well, within the first year or two years uh, while serving there, a guy walks in the door and my wife, I, we had this signal where if somebody walked in or if we were in a space and I knew something was about to happen or there was a potential of something about to happen, I would give her a signal like, get, get the kids and get out of here right now and we'll figure out where to meet later on. And I give her, <laughs> I give her that signal and she's like, what's going on? Well, the guy who walked in the door was a guy I had to tune up once before. So I get a call for a guy beating up his baby mama, his girlfriend, the mother of his children. And I, I, I he got a, a sadly good whooping, as my grandparents would say. And uh, but even when I took him to jail, you know, I, I took the time to say, look, this is what happened, obviously. And it's because of what you did. But you got to get your life together. And I, you know, talked to him, treated him with respect and all those things. So he walks in the door and after church is done, he walks up to me and he could tell I was ready. And he said, hey, Officer Carter, I know you remember me or I don't know if you remember me, but here go the circumstances. And you took me to jail. Uh, it's like I heard you are now the pastor of this church. and I just want to come here and see you and say, hey, I get it. I understood why you did what you did and what you ended up doing. You, you, you didn't treat me like I was an animal. You ended up talking to me helping me understand how I needed to try to change my life, get my life better. And, you know, that I needed to figure out what my life was about and all those different kinds of things and that you cared about me. Uh, and I did that multiple times. Now, I'll never act like I was a perfect officer. I don't want to sound like that at all. But more often than not, I didn't treat people like they were animals. I tried to treat them like they were children of God and that they may be experiencing a life, you know, a negative life circumstance, but that didn't have to be the end of where they were going. And that actually got me in trouble on the police department because, you know, the police department just wanted 
us to get statistics, make arrests, those kind of things. It wasn't about changing people's lives. It was about, you know, going from call to call and making arrests and getting statistics. So let me ask you this then. So as a police officer and and the way you viewed people and the way you treated people, did how prevalent was that in the department? Were, were you by yourself doing that? Were there other officers acting that way? Or was it were the majority of officers treating children, or I'm sorry, not children, but people like they were animals? The majority of the, the culture of policing is to treat citizens like they're animals. So the other this other way of thinking is a, not an anomaly, but it's not the prevalent way of thinking or interacting with people. Uh, I, I say this with all honesty. In five years that I was you know, a police officer, I cannot remember one time when I was told, go out there and help somebody and make somebody's life better. Instead, what we were told was, don't do anything stupid that gets you in trouble and protect your partner and get as many statistics as possible. And I'll give you an example. Um, you know, when you're a police officer, you have the opportunity to work what's called secondary. It's a part-time job in uniform or out of uniform, but with all of your police powers. And so people will work, you know, security at a bank. You'll work, you know, the front door security at a club. You'll do whatever. Anyway. And I worked a lot of security. I was a young, you know, young dad trying to figure out how to make it. And I remember one sergeant telling me, hey, you shouldn't be working. You don't have to work secondary. Just make enough arrests so you can get overtime and you'll be fine. And I was like, what? You're telling me to, that my financial future or my financial outlook should be based on arresting people to make overtime? That's that's not cool. That's not a good thing. And so to, more back to your original question. Uh, I, I can't say that I was unique, but there were only a handful of us that I can think of that had that attitude. How big was the police department? How many officers were there at that time when you were there? Oh, I, I can't remember, it, but it was several thousand. So so let me ask you this then. And from the background I came from, and I told you before we started recording, I was your typical white conservative Christian, thin blue line guy. I had a bracelet that I wore you know, thin blue line bracelet, you know, and I bought some for my buddies and I did everything I could to defend any action to the police officer against anything they did. Like if, if, if you, you've, I'm sure you've heard people say this, what they were just following the law. Okay. So here's, here's where as an anarchist now, and people say this all the time, we have a distrust for the government. We have distrust for the state, but they still go and put the people back in office and put these people back in power that are doing these things to people. Now, do you really have a distrust of the state or you do have a distrust for the other team that's against your team? Okay, now as an anarchist, we've come to a conclusion now that we have nothing but distrust for the state. And that includes police officers. Okay, and it's one of the questions I get all the time from people that are not anarchists trying to understand what I'm talking about. Well, what happens in a voluntary society? What happens to the police department? What happens to the fire department? What happens to medical services? We're not saying that stuff's going to go away. And something y'all talked about on the show, I keep going back to that show that you were on with Michael Storm, but it makes sense because, and I've said this to other people, that the policing today is set up, and I think you said this in that show, is set up to protect the state. It's not set up to protect the citizen. And once I understood that, it kind of opened my eyes to some things like, whoa, what have I been believing this whole time? Where did I learn this? Where did, I mean, who's, who's beat this into my head to believe this? I, and then and then, and and not long after, I don't know how long I've been an anarchist, but then George Floyd gets murdered. I don't want to say he was killed. I want to say he was murdered. 
we saw it right there on video. And there were still people out there defending this officer for putting that knee on that man's neck and suffocating him. I would have been that guy back in the day defending what he was doing. Well, if he would just not have resisted, he would still be alive. No, I don't want to hear that garbage anymore. That's the, that's the narrative. So in the book, Police on a Pedestal, I outline how we have gotten here. And part of the reason we have gotten here is because, and again, I am not a prejudiced person. My goal, again, is to bring people together. But we have to acknowledge that the lived experiences of people groups is completely different. We don't even have to go very far. We have to do a look in a legitimate textbook that shows white people have the power and have had the power and everyone else has been subject to the power of white people. Doesn't make white people bad. What I'm talking about is the systems that are in place. And so what we have done is, is we have criminalized the existence of certain people groups. And this has been going on for multiple years. We have too much evidence experience. So we can look back to, you know, Republicans' favorite president, Ronald Reagan, who criminalized the image of the black woman and said she's a welfare queen, a welfare queen, excuse me, when the data clearly shows that white women utilize public service more than black women do to criminalize the image of the black man. So we make one incident that a black man is found to have participated in and make that represent everyone else. And so there's this culture of fear that has been built and developed around blackness throughout you know, the history of our nation and policing was begun in order to control, number one, Native Americans first who were trying to regain their land from white settlers. And then number two, African-Americans, black people who were either enslaved and had escaped or who had gained their freedom and that they wanted, re they wanted to return back to slavery. Policing started as the way to control both of those people groups. And so throughout our history, that's what the experience is. And now what we want typically is for somebody else to help manage that fear. And so we turn that power over to police. So it doesn't matter what a police officer does, as long as they make us as white people feel better or feel protected, then we're okay and we will sign off on it. Now, don't let it happen to us as white people because then we have the uh, legal you know, uh, skills or the legal uh, uh, things that we need in order to protect us. But as long as it happens to our minority, it's fine, that's what they deserved. And that's what they get. How come they didn't? And that's part of the reason why I've written all these books, because after Michael Brown was shot and killed in Ferguson, um, I heard all these Christians, these white Christians. So I'm a Baptist. Doesn't really matter. But the point is, is that I'm, uh, I'm a, one of a handful of black Baptists in a particular denomination who who has a voice. And I don't say that egotistically either. But people, you know, when something happens, they contact us so we can articulate whatever it is. But I hear all these white Christians talking about Michael Brown like he's an animal. And well, why didn't he just cooperate? And, and in addition to that, why don't black people, why are they so unhappy? Why don't they just do what they're told? Why can't they just get along with everybody else? And that's from a position of, I don't wanna use the word privilege, but from a position of power when you have not experienced what these people groups have experienced. And so that's part of what the challenge is. And that's again, part of the reason why I've written, you know, these consecutive number of books is to try to help white Christians understand that the world is much more different and vast and life experience is much uh, different and vast than what you have experienced and what you know. Yeah. And you said something about why don't they just do what they're told? You know what that sounds like to me? <laughs> what? Slavery. Yeah, come on. Come on. Come on. Come on. Am I wrong? 
I mean, literally. That's literally. That's what it sounds like to me. If, if a person, if a person is acting like that or saying things like that, think about what was going on back in when people were slaves. Okay, think about what was going. On. They, if they just did what they were told, they weren't beaten, and they were still beaten anyway. Okay, that's a that's a mentality that people need to get away from. Man, I, and I, I've got so many things to repent from. I used to have that idea, but I didn't think of it that way. I didn't think that that I, maybe they're just not seeing it from that perspective that like they should. I see it now. I see the state for what it is now. I think the state is is a, is a, is an agent of, of uh, for slavery. Think about it in the sports context, as we're both baseball fans. All right, so you're a baseball fan. I'm a huge football fan. You know, all this stuff started happening, and LeBron James spoke out. What was the first thing he was told? Shut up and dribble. Like, do what you're told. Entertain us. And just because he makes millions of dollars doesn't mean that people respect him or view him as fully human. No, they view him as a commodity for their entertainment and for their well-being or for their enjoyment. Well, the only thing I have against LeBron James is people say he's better than Michael Jordan. I will have none of that. <laughs> <laughs> I will not argue with you on that one. Sir. I grew I, you know, back in my, I was a big Bulls fan when I was a kid, man. I was, it was because of Michael Jordan. And when I hear today that LeBron, when I first moved to Memphis, one of the, the sports talk radios around here kept saying LeBron is the GOAT. And I'm like, uh-uh. And he would go on about it. I had to turn him off because it was just making me angry. Right. I don't mean to do, get off the topic, but that's what I have against LeBron is He's not better than Michael Jordan. Well, they also, we we are also fans of the most current and the most, you know, the whatever worth watching today. I mean, people forget about Dr. J. They forget about Will Chamberlain. They forget about all these other players yeah. who, who, who didn't have cryo tubes to help them regenerate every <laughs> night after they play the game. Yeah. All right. All right. So we diverted a little bit. That's okay. We always kind of bounce back. We do that on the show quite a bit. We'll We'll bounce around quite a bit. We always come back to the point we're talking about. Anyway, that's all right with me. Hey, folks, Craig here again. As you know, this project is completely self-funded by me, and all profits go straight to charities here in Memphis. If you have a blog, a podcast, or a product that you would like to advertise on the Bad Roman Podcast, the first 15 folks to sign up for four ad spots with us will get a fifth spot for free. Visit thebadroman.com slash ads. I'm so happy how this project has grown, and thanks for listening. Now let's get back to the conversation. But all right, I want to talk about something else. When you were talking about, as a police officer, viewing people as an image of God or seeing them as, a, as an image of God, how did you reconcile that as a police officer and as a Christian? You see what I'm saying? Do you, you understand where I'm going with this? I, I do. I, it was hard for me to reconcile it. Again, I, I think I said a few moments ago, I was serving as the interim pastor of a church in, you know, in the district that I patrolled. I was also serving... One of my grandfathers was pastor at the time and I was serving, you know, before that interim and then after that interim position, you know, served alongside him and his congregation. And it was extremely hard for me to uh, to reconcile those. There's in my mind is there's no way to reconcile them other than saying I'm just going to do what I'm told. I'm not going to think about it. And in order for me to keep my job in it, it, just to be truthful, you know, I'm 23 years old. I'm a young father. I don't know that I have many other prospects in life. Now I did. I just, you know, you find yourself not recognizing your full potential or, or the all the options that are out there. So I'll give you an example. That's a better way to say this. So I'm a single father. Uh, I'm, I'm, you know, doing all that I can do uh, to take care of my son. And very early on, within my first three months, 
uh, I ended up riding with a training officer who falsified a police report as well in my name to try to give me more statistics. And I pushed back against that and was like, no, I'm not signing this. This is not how this turned out. And the guy was arrested because he had a wad of cash. It's not illegal to have a wad of cash in your house. It was a wad of cash around tax time. And there is a certain segment of black culture that doesn't trust banks. So they keep cash in the house in general. That's nothing wrong with that. This guy had a series of unmarked pills that we could clearly tell were Sudafed and other over-the-counter generic allergy drugs. And then he had an old pistol that was so rusted that the rust, my hand, the palm of my hand was brown uh, when I picked it up. Anyway, so this officer is trying to give me statistics, writes this false police report, and I push back and say, no, I'm not going to sign it. I go to another police officer who I thought I could trust and said, hey, this happened. Help me think through how I can get out of this because I don't feel comfortable doing this. And he told me, come back the following day. He will help me figure it out. I came back the following day and my partner said to me, like, I heard about what you did. If you ever do that again, something's going to happen to you. You're going to be out here by yourself and something's going to happen to you. So I learned pretty quickly that the system did not go for honesty. That wasn't the only time that that happened. And the officer that I testified against in court, that wasn't the last, I mean, the first time that that happened. I had another commander who uh, my first day in a very particular position told me, do what you're told follow what they're doing and you'll be okay. And I'm like, what? That, that, that doesn't make sense. That shouldn't be your comment to me. Uh, it's, it's part of the system and there's really no way to reconcile it. So you either say, I'm going to do what the system requires of me or you push back and then you receive whatever the consequences are for your pushing back. Well, I know you're, you're uh, listening to you in this conversation, the one with uh, Michael Storm, you're a very humble person. And you're not wanting to call yourself brave. And I'm going to tell you right now, sir, you're a brave man. And I, and I have a, I have a question though, but do you, are you still friends with any of your former officers or, or they just all just hate you right now? No, there are a handful that I'm still friends with, but no, the vast majority of them, uh, well, there's been enough time that as not as many people remember anymore, but the more I write and the more I, you know, am, trying to engage people in this conversation, the more it opens the old wounds. But so there are a handful that I'm still, you know, friends with and have great respect for, and they have great respect for me. But then there's a much larger segment that wishes I would shut up and, you know, just go somewhere. Just tell the line. So are these folks that are still friends with, that you're still friends with, are they still police officers or have they left this? They are still police officers or they retired from policing. So yeah, none of them gave up on the, uh, gave up on the, the the job. But then again, I do know several police officers who who have quit. And the irony for me is, is multiple of them and not even some of them who I didn't know who just read the books or read any of my books said, hey, I wish I would have had the courage to do what you're doing. Or I wish somebody would have said this when I was on the department because maybe I would have done things differently. Well, without keeping you for the rest of the day, because I could probably talk to you for several more hours and neither one of us had that kind of time today, I'm sure. Maybe we'll, I'll just get you back on and we'll We'll just continue the conversation sometime. But before I let you go, why don't you uh, tell us a little bit about Rise? Because we have some listeners in Missouri. I don't know how what their proximity to St. Louis is, but they may be close to St. Louis and may be interested in what you guys are doing and maybe offer their service in some form, in some fashion. And then tell us where we can find your books at and plug anything you want to plug. Okay. No, I would love to be on again. And thank you again for having me today. 
Uh, you can find any of the books on Amazon. Again, my name is Terrell Carter, T-E-R-R-E-L-L-C-A-R-T-E-R. -E 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 the books on policing, uh, I wrote an autobiography, a really short book that will take probably less than two hours to read called uh, Walking the Blue Line, a police officer turned community activist provides solutions to the racial divide. And the other policing book was called uh, Police on a Pedestal, Responsible Policing in a Culture of Worship. But the rest of the books that I've written are all about seeing God's image in other people and how we should honor that. So any of the other books that you find with my name on it, that's what they are about. RISE Community Development is a community development corporation that seeks to make healthier, more equitable communities and neighborhoods in St. Louis City, St. Louis County, Madison County, and St. Clair County in Illinois. And we do that through a couple of different ways. We either build or help other people build housing, safe, adequate, equitable housing, called affordable housing in those areas. And what that means is we build housing with the assistance of state, local, state, and federal funds where, um, you know, a house that would typically cost $1,000 per month for a person to live in, they can live in it for $500 or $600 a month. I'm just giving it a broad example. So we build housing. We also help other people. We consult other people who want to build housing. We have a CDFI, meaning we are a community development financial institution. We will give funding to small women and minority-owned businesses uh, in, that are in the construction industry to help them. We will also fund uh, certain developers who want to go into communities that are in our service area and help to redevelop those communities to make them safer, healthier, more equitable as well. Uh, we help cities and municipalities with planning and helping them understand what, how to do what they do better and help them find resources in order to help them do what they do. We also uh, provide strategic consulting for cities and municipalities. For example, we have completed an affordable housing study for the entire city of St. Louis, meaning we have examined the entire city and all of the houses, housing prices, housing stock, housing availability, and have identified what some of the challenges are what some of the opportunities are for the new mayor of the city of St. Louis as well. And so we try to make, again, in multiple ways, safer, healthier, more equitable communities and neighborhoods. And we are a nonprofit organization. So we're not out here trying to, you know, kill the bank. What we do is we try to fulfill our mission of making people's lives better. Living like Christ told us to, right? Yes, sir. Yes, sir. And, you know, again, I was, the vice president of a university last year, and this opportunity came out of nowhere, and it fits my calling to help make people's lives better. So that's the reason why I'm doing it, because I wholeheartedly believe in it. I love it, man. I really love it, and I really appreciate your work. And like I told you before we started recording, when you started talking about everything, you know, I was like, I knew he was busy, but I didn't know how busy he was. <laughs> <laughs> Get you some rest, man, and, uh, and take the rest of the afternoon off and, and relax and enjoy some college football. I was about to say, I'm going to go watch some college football. All right, buddy. I'm going to get you back on. This was a fun conversation. I wish we had more time, but we will definitely do this again, and I will talk to you soon. I look forward to it. Thank you for having me on. Thanks for joining us this week on the Bad Roman Podcast. Be sure to subscribe to the show wherever you find your podcasts to never miss an episode. And while you're at it, if you like what you heard, we'd appreciate a rating on iTunes. Or if you'd simply tell a friend about the show, it really helps people find us. 100% of donations are given to local charities in Memphis, Tennessee. To learn more about the Bad Roman Project, 
and to find show notes, please visit thebadroman.com. <laughs>